Great song. Thanks, band. Uh, good morning, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, like Aaron said earlier, we're uh, glad that you are here this morning. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad that uh, you're here to join us. Uh, recently, my wife was a really good sport and watched one of my favorite movies, one that's uh, not her favorite and uh, maybe a little bit hard for her to watch, but uh, it's a movie Braveheart. Anyone seen Braveheart here? Leah has. Leah's seen it. And uh, really great, really great story, uh, but it starts off really rough. If you, if you know the story, the very beginning, there's just these really horrible acts. There's an evil king. He uh, murders kids and, and uh, hangs them, and you get to see it, and it's just, it's really, really hard to watch. And so just a few minutes into this story, into this movie, my wife and I talk about, you know, like, uh, just how it's so hard to watch and how that actually makes a better story. So when there's a, when there's a greater evil, when there's a gra- greater villain, a greater obstacle to overcome, the hero or the resolution or the light in the end of the story is actually made even greater. So in contrast to, to a great story like Braveheart that has a really, really evil king is a TV show my son likes to watch called Jake and the Neverland Pirates. Which, uh, if you don't know, it's it's kind of it's in Neverland, same place as Peter Pan, and it's these pirates that kind of like battle against Captain Hook, who's still around. But in this story, at least, Captain Hook is not so much evil as he he kind of just creates mischief, and he's like, you know, kind of selfish sometimes, and and so all all the conflict in Jake and the Neverland Pirates is to kind of just fix this little problem or get Captain Hook to not be so selfish or. Uh, something like that. And so the ending of an episode of Jake and the Neverland Pirate is not nearly as satisfying or beautiful or glorious or powerful as the ending of a story like Braveheart, where you see horrible evil, great injustice, lots of darkness, and then at at the end, that loses. At the end, uh, victory and light and a hero wins. It's a much greater story than, you know, 22 minutes of Jake and the Neverland Pirate's and that's kind of what we're going to see today. So the book of Genesis, we're in a sermon series in the very first, first book of the Bible. If you've been with us in this series this past year, you've seen a lot of that darkness. You've seen some really great high points, the creation of the universe and everything in it, humanity and God living in perfect relationship in paradise together. But we've also seen rebellion against God and then this downward spiral of sin and evil and darkness and things just get worse and worse and worse. Again, we do see these kind of little spikes where God steps in and says, I'm going to make a people for myself. I'm going to promise you. I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to give you blessing. And he starts with this guy named Abraham. And then that blessing, that promise, covenant kind of moves from Abraham down through his children. But there's just been a lot of darkness so far in Genesis. And what it's going to do, it's going to set the story to make the resolution, the answer, the hero, even greater, even more bright, even more beautiful, and more powerful. So today we're going to see a story that is full of evil. That's going to lead to great pain and suffering and murder. And we're going to see this great sin that is going to come against uh, this woman named Dinah. So brand new character. We haven't seen her yet in this story. We've seen her name just as she was described as one of Jacob's daughters. So Abraham, his grandson Jacob's been kind of the person we've been following the past couple weeks in the story, and now we're going to look at his uh, daughter, Dinah. And she's going to be a victim of a horrible uh, crime against her. And it's going to be really hard to hear. It's going to be really hard to think about if, if this is partly your story, if you have a loved one who has a similar story, or if you just put a face to the name of Dinah rather than just some statistic or some story that's very distant from you. I'm going to read about this uh, in all of chapter 34 today. But we're going to see that even though this is one of the darkest, uh, evilest, is that a word? Most evil stories in Genesis so far, we're going to see that there is both hope and justice for Dinah and those like her. Both the, the perpetrators, the, the, the abusers, as well as Dinah as, as a victim and someone who has, sin, has had a sin against her. So, so far we've been, uh, in the book of Genesis, we've been following this guy Abraham and his family, Peter talked about, and then his grandson, Jacob. And so far we've seen God again and again and again step in and rescue his people when they sin, when they are foolish, 
when they mess up. That just happened again last week, and again, we're going to see it happen again with, with Jacob's family. It's kind of unique in this story, though. God doesn't show up. At least in Genesis 34, we don't see God's name mentioned. And it's kind of a cool literary device where the author shows us that God is absent from here. Not, not that he doesn't care or not involved, but it just shows when God is absent, we see uh, righteous anger turn to really horrible sin. We see uh, uh, beauty turned into something really evil. And so in a literary way, we see God quite absent from Genesis 34 and then see a downward spiral of sin and evil and abuse and problems. So we're going to start uh, in verse 1. In Genesis 34, it'll be up here on the screen. You can also follow along in a pew Bible in front of you. Starting in uh, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the, woman, uh, the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So this, this character that we've just seen named previously, this, this woman named Dinah, she's, she's the daughter of Jacob and Jacob's first wife, Leah, and she's taken by a privileged, powerful man who rapes her. It's not a one-night stand, to be clear. It isn't consensual. It's not just two people who got drunk and made a mistake, but it's evil, it's rape, and it's sin. And to be clear, because this is so unclear in our culture often, she doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it because of the clothes she was wearing or the location she was at, the people she was visiting or hanging out with. And even if, even if we don't know they are, but even if those were poor choices, no one deserves to be raped. Dina is a, vic- Dinah is a victim and Shechem is a rapist. So here, here in me describe this in such black and white terms or in such detail might be really uncomfortable for you. It's uncomfortable for me to say and to be thinking about this this whole week as I've been studying this passage. But one of our culture's greatest problems is to uh, silence victims. In our history, we've we've shamed victims so much. We've said that uh, it's it's their fault. They deserved it. They're doing something they shouldn't be. But we need to be very clear today that Dinah did not deserve to be raped. No one deserves to be the victim of sexual violence. And it doesn't matter if she was in a sketchy part of town, if she even started the flirting with Shechem, or even if she had feelings for him. The passage here describes this as Dinah being seized by this man. She is taken against her will, and he forces himself upon her, he has sex with her, and he humiliates her. These are words that are not describing two consensual adults or rather, this is evil, and this is sin. And there's so many things wrong with, with what happened in this story, with rape in general. We're going to talk about a few of them. But the first one we're going to talk about is that what uh, rape or other types of sexual violence, what it does is it dehumanizes the victim. It tells uh, them that they're not someone created in God's image with, with uh, great, incredible worth, but rather they're just an object. There's someone that has less value than the abuser. It takes away their humanity, their dignity, and makes them just a means to an end. It denies the truth that they are an image bearer of God and still, and instead makes them a thing with the purpose of just entertaining or bringing pleasure to the abuser. And we see just how sin works here. We see in Shechem's depraved state of mind, he thinks that he actually loves her after taking her abusing her, raping her, he ends by, by thinking, oh, man, I really love this girl. I don't just want to use her. I want to keep her in my house. I want to make her my wife. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, so Shechem spoke with his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. So this character, Shechem, he's a powerful guy. The, the town that they're by is probably named uh, after him. His father is called the prince of this land. And so this privileged, powerful, arrogant and lustful man goes to his father and says, Dad, get me that girl. I, I got her. I've, I've taken her. She's still in my home or my tent or whatever, but I want you to make her mine. 
I know this is not a great example because they're, they're very different, but I kind of hear like, like the, in, the, in Willy Wonka, that child that says, ooh, daddy, I want one of those. Get me one of those. And so this, this woman, Dinah, is now just an object, another trophy for him. And what we, what we notice here is we, we don't see remorse. We don't see repentance. We don't see, oh, man, I did something horrible, but I really do love her and I want to make up for it. We don't see any repentance. We don't see any remorse. We just see him going to his father and say, get me that woman for my wife. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with him, or sorry, were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an uh, outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So sadly, we see a contrast between two characters. We see a father who's super passive, that when he hears about his daughter being raped, he kind of just steps back and says, I'm sure he dislikes it, but says, well, this could create great problems for our family, or what am I going to say to the, the prince of the land, this wealthy, powerful man? And then we see the brothers show up who, have, who are indignant, who have this righteous anger. That's a good thing. They say, why did this horrible thing happen to our sister? And again and again, we see in this passage, in Genesis, or the author of Genesis describing this event as something evil, not trying to sugarcoat it, describing it as an outrageous thing, something that should never be done in the land. Verse 8, but Hamer spoke uh, with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said uh, to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price. And, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So we see the father now come into the picture, the father, father of Shechem. And what does he do? He doesn't, he doesn't uh, discipline his son. He doesn't come against him publicly. But he enables him. He listens to his father's request. And again, the father, no remorse, no apology, no repentance. He actually tries to get what his spoiled son thinks he wants. And now we're going to see as the story continues the great lengths to which Shechem and Shechem's father go to get or to appease Shechem's lust and his greed. So he essentially comes to Jacob and his sons and tries to buy them off and says, okay, actually he doesn't even acknowledge that they did a horrible thing, but he comes and just says, okay, kind of with like a blank check, how much is it going to cost? What do you want? And begins to tell them, hey, let, let me just buy you off. Hey, if, if, if we can have your daughter to marry my son and our people intermarry, you're going to get very wealthy. You're going to have great lands. It's going to be a really good business decision for you, a really good uh, security for you and your family. If you give us Dinah, we'll, we'll have a treaty, and we'll both get rich off of this. But before we continue, if you're a dad in the room especially, do not be like this, this father. Do not enable your children. Do not uh, or do the hard work of discipline. Teach them that their view of women should be of one of honor and respect. And when they fall short, which they probably will, firmly yet lovingly correct their, their sin. Do not give in. Do not be cowardly like the father here in this story. Do not look over sin, hoping it will just go away. Do not be like this, this horrible father that's just complacent in his son's uh, rape and abuse. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamer, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing. We cannot give you our sister uh, for that would be a disgrace. Sorry, skip the line here. Uh, they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take 
your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we, can, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So Shechem and Hamer are trying to deceive Jacob's family, and then in response, Jacob's family is trying to deceive them. They tell them that the only way that we will go about this is, is you have to become one like us. You have to be circumcised like us. And so we see great deception and, and trickery as, as Jacob's sons are taking something that's supposed to be good, circumcision, which is the, the mark of the covenant that God's making a promise with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and, and their descendants, and they're saying, you must do this in order to become like us. We're going to see that they're really trying to do this to uh, deceive them, and so that's what's going on there. Verse 18, their words, or Jacob's son's plan, uh, pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men, speaking of Jacob and his family, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, their land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become our people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the city. So both sides are thinking that through, through this deal that they're both going to get rich. They let their pride and their greed and their desire for more uh, lead them in the city to all get circumcised. And Jacob and his family are planning, we'll see, an attack against uh, Shechem and his father and their city. Verse 25. On the third day when they were sore, quote-unquote sore, uh, two of the sons, Jacob and Simeon, Sorry, two of the sons of Jacob, his uh, second and third born, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. So, so these two guys are her full brothers. She has a bunch of half-brothers as well. Uh, two of Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So two of uh, Jacob's sons, two of uh, Dinah's full brothers, while the whole city or all the men are all very sore and, and unable to defend themselves, come in and murder all the men in the city. And so we see their righteous anger at the beginning of our passage, which is a good thing, right? They're, they're indignant. They're horrified at, at this evil that was brought against their sister. We see that leads to something much, much horrible, the, the, the murder and the slaughter of many, many men. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob, so now all the brothers, not just those two, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones their, uh, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So all Jacob's uh, sons come into the city, they plunder the city, they take all, all the wealth out of the city and a quick aside, we've been saying this many times throughout Genesis because of just the, the dark nature of, of many of these stories, but it's very important for us to see and to know that there is a difference between what the Bible describes and prescribes. And so just because we see a story like this one in the book of Genesis, both the, the rape of Dinah as well as the, the, the murder of an entire city because of vengeance, because of revenge, we need to see that just because it's in the Bible does not mean the Bible saying this is good, nor is it saying go and do the same. So just like a reporter who reports on a murder and writes about it in the newspaper is not saying this murder is good, you should go do it, but rather just telling what happened. But unlike a reporter, what the Bible is doing here in narrative form through story is showing the consequences of this sin. We don't have God stepping in and, you know, verse... Uh, adding a verse, verse 32 saying, and everything they did was horrible and evil. Or rather, we see it through story form. We see lots and lots of consequences of their sins. We see how many people are hurt. We see how 
the evil escalates from, from one rape of one person, which is a horrible thing, to the murder of all the men in the entire city, their uh, wives and kids displaced. And then at the end of the story, we see Jacob confront his sons. And essentially say, what have you done? You do not realize what you have done. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, he says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So remember, Jacob and his family just came back to this land. And so they camped right outside of Shechem. And then all of a sudden, what we just read happened. So Jacob's saying, you don't understand what you just did. Yeah, we know he's a coward for not sticking up for his daughter. But he's arguing to them by saying, by you taking such great revenge and by murdering so many people. Now, any of these other nations or tribes or cities can band together and come wipe us out. My numbers are few, Jacob says, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, or attack us, our tribe, we shall be, dis- be destroyed, both I and my household. And then the brothers respond by saying, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So our chapter ends with the con- two uh, cr- contrasting uh, evil people and evil sins and, and, and foolish acts. We see Jacob on the one hand being uh, passive and cowardly, not sticking up for his family, not demanding justice, not calling out sin, not protecting his daughter. And on the other hand, we have two sons who, who start with righteous anger against something that's really evil and horrible and come up against it, but in their sin, they escalate it way too much. And, and not only uh, murder a bunch of uh, a bunch of people murder not just kill but murder them we uh we also see that god's covenant people now the the readers listening and they're thinking what's going to happen to them now again and again and again god's people are, are being surrounded by people that are trying to kill them uh, mostly because of their own foolishness and sin and so the story kind of ends no good resolution kind of two contrasting yet both foolish and evil characters in our story So there we go, Genesis 34. Another really crazy story with lots of sin and deeply flawed characters. And even though over and over again in this chapter, the sexual assault against Dinah is described as an evil, sinful thing. Let's just make it very clear one more time. what, What happened with her was rape. It wasn't consensual. It was evil. It was sinful. And the consequences of that brought so much suffering, not just to her, but also to her family and to, to other people, the, all the women and children of this village as well. And so even though what, what we just saw is, is a horrible sin, we can maybe feel like we can distance ourselves from this. Hey, this happened in a very unique time, in a unique place, in a different type of culture, in a different type of world. But this uh, rape of women, this, this devaluing of women, seeing them as objects and something that we can take or use, whether literally or just through jokes or comments or just in our minds or whatever it might be, that's not just a problem that happened in the ancient world, but it's a problem right here today in our own world now. In fact, here in America, so not even throughout the world, but here in America, every two minutes, there's someone who is sexually assaulted. And one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. Those statistics should just disgust us. They should make our hearts just cry out uh, for, for, for justice, uh, break. Our hearts should break for seeing what these victims have to go through and just seeing how pervasive it is. It's not just a very small percentage of people. It's actually one in six. One in six women will either... Well, will either have an attempted rape or a completed rape on her in her lifetime. It just should break our hearts. These numbers are staggering, hard to fathom, and we should, both reading this story and just seeing how it happens in our culture, this should lead us to disgust. It's an appropriate response. We should hate this evil. We should call it a sin. We should not just see it as, a, as statistics, but we should put faces to these victims as well especially if you know, uh, many of you know these victims personally and they've shared their stories with you. And our response should be disgust as well as crying out for justice. Whether it's justice here in this world with, with the police or government or, or whatever it might be, or whether it's just crying out to God, asking God just like that story <laughs> or just like that song, 
that we sang earlier, cry out to God, God, bring your justice. This is evil. You're a good God. Come against this. And both of those responses are good and right. So let me just stop there and say it one more time. If your response to what we just read or the statistics or all of Genesis 34 is disgust, righteous anger, a desire for justice, know that's a good thing and it reflects our God and, and, and his character. He is a God of justice. He is a God that, has, uh, that can't look at sin because of uh, his holiness and his disgust with, with evil. So that's where we're at right now. But the Bible doesn't stop there, thankfully. The Bible doesn't just stop at Genesis 34, but continues. And later on in the story, and especially when Jesus shows up, he does some crazy things. He goes and he talks to these people that have such disgust towards sin and this righteous anger, but that's been twisted and has turned into contempt and arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. If you know anything about Jesus, you know he shows up again and again, and his biggest uh, enemies, the biggest people he has, or the people he has the most conflict with are the religious people, the, pe- the people that say, look at me on the outside, I look really good. I'm not like a Shechem, I'm not like a Hamor, I'm not like Jacob. But that on the outside, they looked really good, they looked really holy. People, uh, Jesus came in conflict with people that thought that they were much better than Shechem or Levi or Jacob or Hamor. But Jesus came and he, he held up a mirror and he showed them that they were just as rotten, just as sinful, just as broken beneath their holy exteriors. Jesus began to teach that we are not actually the heroes of the story, but apart from Christ, we are the villains. And they killed him for it. They hated him for this message. Jesus essentially said, we are the Shechems of the story. We are the ones whose lust, greed, and abuse dehumanizes people, whether it's in our minds, in our hearts, or even at time, in our actions. And we use people for our own pleasure and our own gain and our own power without their consent. We, too, are passive Jacobs who, out of fear and cowardice, don't protect those that we're responsible for or stand up against evil. We, too, are the vengeful, violent, and murderous Levi's and Simeon's. And we are the hammers who enable sin without remorse or repentance. And the people hated Jesus for this. Jesus showed up in, in one of his most famous teachings, the, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he talks to people who think that they're really close to God. People that think that their relationship with God is healed or perfect or that they're uh, really good people. And he says, you think that you can, you can earn yourself back to God. You think that God is pleased and proud with you because you followed all these laws. But actually, let me really tell you what's, what's underneath all of these laws. So Jesus is not so much upping the, an- upping the ante, but rather showing self-righteous people that they do still need a savior, that they do still need a doctor. They do still need a shepherd. So Matthew 5, 27 uh, and 28, he says, You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he tells these people that are really good at not cheating on their spouses. He says, you think you're so much better than all the immoral, sexually immoral people around you? But I'm telling you that the heart of this law is that if you even do that in your heart or mind with, with another woman or another man, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. He's holding up the mirror to these people that think that they're so great and showing them that we all need a Savior, that we're all broken on the inside. He says something similar. So, so here he's talking to people like Shechem and, Ham- and Hamor. And then also in Matthew 25, he's talking to people like, like Levi and Simeon, people who uh, think that they're not as bad as those guys because they've never murdered someone. And so in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says, you have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's again breaking down these walls or holding up these mirrors and saying, you think that you're better than than Levi and Simeon because you haven't actually murdered people. 
But actually what's at the heart of this law is, is you hating other people, you disrespecting other people, you calling them fools and you uh, dehuma dehum dehumanizing them. And he says the, the punishment for that sin is just as bad as the punishment for murder. So Jesus is telling them, telling us today, that whether you lust inside your heart and your mind or whether you actually commit adultery, they essentially are the same they essentially are the same thing. Obviously, the night, just to be very clear, murdering someone and just hating someone, there are very different consequences, right? Obviously, we, we know that. And, you know, having an affair and just a lustful thought have very different consequences. But Jesus' point here is not saying that they have the exact same consequences, but saying that both of those people, the person with one lustful thought and the Shechem, both of them need a Savior. Both of them are, are sinful in their core, and need a doctor to come heal them. So as Jesus is pulling up this mirror, the people listening to him, and, and us today, myself, as I was studying this, begin to kind of like pause. Wait, I was just screaming for a God of justice, a God of punishment, a God who to bring about uh, yeah, punishment to evil people and evil things. But now Jesus just reminds us that we're actually those people as well. So now we go from demanding justice, again, which we said is a good thing, to now realizing, oh no, I'm also an enemy of God. I'm also a sinful human being that's broken, that also deserves punishment. And Jesus came, think about a lot of things that he said. He, he said, I come not for people who think that they're okay or that they think that they don't need a doctor, but I came for the sick. He said, I came for people who know that they're lost and they, they want and need a shepherd. Jesus has this incredible parable in Luke 18. And, and notice who he tells it to. Okay, Luke 18, verse 9 says, uh, He, speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Right? So, so Jesus comes to a bunch of people that they thought that in themselves, all by themselves, apart from God, they were righteous. And they had contempt. They looked down. They hated on others. So me. So us. People that look at Shechem and Jacob and Hamor and Levi and Simeon with total contempt and think that we're so much better than them. Jesus says, this is a parable to these type of people of who I am one, of who we are all like this as well. Now listen to what he says. Jesus says, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one's a Pharisee, one's like, uh, you know, a holy person, very pietistic, following all the laws, all the rules, people respect them, look up to them. There's this person and another, the other person was a tax collector. So someone who has betrayed their own people, their own country. They're a traitor. They're, they're uh, stealing money from their own people to give to this oppressive government. They're the worst of the worst. So think of, in your mind, whoever, whatever the worst sin is or the, the worst people in society. So Jesus is comparing these two people. Perfect and the scum of the earth. Both these people come to the temple and look at how they pray. The Pharisee, the, the righteous person, the, the good-looking person, stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. So now he starts listing off all of his, uh, you know, the stuff on his resume. God, be proud of me. You should be thankful for me. You kind of owe me a little bit because I'm not like these horrible people. And look, look at what I've done for you. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And in contrast, this other guy, the tax collector, look at what he does. But the tax collectors, the scum of the earth, he stands far off. He, wouldn't even, he doesn't even dare approach God. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. Forgive me. Have compassion on me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what is, how does Jesus respond? So he sees, I mean, it's a parable. So he paints the picture of these two contrasting people. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the scum of the earth that was, that, that was broken and said, I need a savior. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner and I need mercy. 
that guy, not the guy who looked perfect on the outside that everyone looked up to, that followed all the rules, but was self-righteous and had contempt on this person. This guy, the scum of the earth, went home justified, went home as right before God, went home with, with an innocence that God gave him because of forgiveness, because of mercy. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Also, later on in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, very similar to this parable as well, the Apostle Paul, <coughs> he says, the guy that wrote half of the New Testament, was one of these people, was one of the Pharisees, was one of the religious rulers. He said that he was blameless. So essentially, he, he kind of like said, if there's anyone out there, any of my colleagues, my peers, that can, can name one, one time where I didn't follow the law, where I broke the law, tell me. So he, he's, he's saying, before the law, I am blameless. No one can, can say anything against me. That same guy realized what Jesus just taught in this parable in Luke 18, and he calls himself a chief of sinners. So this guy that on the outside has done everything perfect, can't even be blamed, he says that in my heart, this guy Paul, he says, in my heart, I know that I'm the chief of sinners. I'm one of the worst sinners because I realize in my heart I'm sinful. And maybe I haven't murdered or committed adultery or committed rape or, or overlooked sin, but I know in my heart, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for God, I would be just as evil as then. Paul says, I know my heart. I know my sinful nature. I know that I'm the chief, the worst of sinners. So, so far this morning, we've gone from, from righteous anger, demanding justice, demanding God to show up, to bring about punishment to the, to the guilty, to people who are horrible. We moved from there to realizing we also are the guilty. We also are the evil people, the villains here in this story. But the gospel, which, which literally means good news, the good news is that through Jesus' life, death, and re resurrection, both of those people, the victim as well as the abuser, both of those people will receive justice and hope. The gospel is good news for everyone. Everyone in our story, from Shechem all the way to Dinah, from complacent, passive, enabling fathers to, to murderous sons. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, so two things simultaneously. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In our hearts, we are Shechem's. We are Jacob's. We are Dinah's. We are Levi's. Yet at the same time, we're more accepted and loved than Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope would, 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 would be true. So first, let's look at how the good news, how the gospel is good news for the Dinas, for the people who have been abused, abandoned, who have gone through suffering, and those who have been sinned against. First of all, it's good news. The gospel is good news because God is a just God. Whereas human uh, governments might fail us, social structures, families might fail us, God is a just God. My wife and I, Amy, have been reading First Peter for the past couple months together, and we see it all over the place. Trust God who is just God. So this, it, uh, Peter's writing to a church that's going through all this suffering. Their, their world is crazy. Everything's going wrong. And again and again and again, the author, Peter, writes to this church and says, trust that God is a just God, that either he'll bring about justice in this life or ultimately he, he's going to judge the whole world. See that a couple times. First Peter 4, it comes up. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And also, First Peter doesn't just write to the church and say, tough it out and know that God is going to take care of it in the end. But it also says Jesus. He doesn't just say do this. He actually did this himself. First Peter 2, when he, speaking of Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And how was he able to do this? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus, as he was being betrayed and humiliated and going through many of the same stuff we just saw with Dinah today, today in our story, he didn't revile in return. He didn't fight back. He did not threaten, but instead he trusted God the Father 
who judges justly. So first of all, the gospel's good news to Dinah's because God is a just judge. Secondly, he's also a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who doesn't just leave people abandoned and hurting and suffering. He rescues, he pursues, he redeems, and he restores the broken. If you've been here in Genesis in our series so far, we see it uh, almost in every single story, God reaching out to those type of people. We saw it with Sarah, Abraham's wife, when Abraham pimped her out numerous times to different kings. We see her, her true heavenly husband step in where her earthly father was a coward and a fool. And we see God rescue Sarah multiple times. Same thing happened with another one of Abraham's wives or concubines, Rahab. So she's neglected by her passive husband. She's sent out into the desert to die with her son. And God shows up. He says, I hear you. I see you. You're not alone. I'm not going to just let you die out here. And thirdly, the gospel is good news for the abused, the sufferer, those who have been sinned against, because Jesus is our expiation. It's maybe a doctrine or a term you, you haven't heard. You, you know the idea. But that Jesus cleanses the stain of sin on our souls. Or he makes us clean from the sin that coats us from, from sin that's been done against us. First John 1, 7 through 9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So what Jesus did, the, the perfect life he lived and the death he died in our place on that cross, that blood, if we trust in the cross, if we trust in what he has done for us, that blood cleanses us from all sin. So it's not just a, it gets us out of jail. It's not just it saves us from hell, but it actually cleanses us. It makes us whole. It makes us pure. It makes us clean. It makes us one again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So again, Jesus holding up the mirror saying we're all sinful. We can't say we're so much better than Shechem and God should be really proud with us and he owes us something. We deceive ourselves if we do that and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he promises. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the unrighteousness or sins that we have done, but the sin that's been done against us and that's made us feel unclean or unrighteous. So not only is the gospel good news for the dinas, for, for the abuse victims, for those who have been betrayed and who have been hurt, but it's also good news for the abusers, which is scandalous. Actually, the New Testament, speaking of the gospel, uses this word that means scandalous, right? Why should Shechem get off? Why should these murderous sons of Jacob get off? But if we hold up the mirror, if we, if we listen to how Jesus speaks about who we are and our fallen nature apart from him, we realize we also want good news because we realize we also are the abusers, the lustful, the selfish, the enablers, the sick, the broken. First of all, we see that Jesus took the penalty that we deserved. So it's good news to us who know that we're sinners because we deserved punishment. We deserved a penalty because of our sin. And God is still just in this. Jesus takes on the penalty that we deserved. God doesn't just overlook it. He doesn't just say, yeah, I know that sin was really bad. What Shechem did to Dinah, that was really bad. But I'm just a God of love, so sorry. I can't, I can't punish this person. That wouldn't be love, right? God just looking over sin like that wouldn't be love. And so the gospel is this beautiful kiss of, of God's justice and God's love. And Jesus wanted to do that. It wasn't just God saying, sorry, son, I love these people too much that I'm going to put all their sin on you. Kind of a bummer deal, right? But Jesus saying, no, I'll take on all their sin. I'll put it on myself so that they can be healed, so that they can be forgiven. Romans 4.25 says, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was delivered up for our sins. That's why he went to the cross, for our sins. And he was raised for our justification, which means right standing or us, us being, uh, moving from being guilty to being innocent. Page stuck here. There we go. Not only is uh, the gospel good news to us sinners because Jesus took the penalty, but Jesus is also our justification. We put our trust in what he's done on the cross. It's just as if we've never sinned. 
Again, we move from being guilty to being innocent. We're made righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Romans 5, 9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So it's through Christ's blood that we are, are saved from our sins. It's through Christ's blood that the wrath that was due us for being Shechem's and Jacob's and Levi's is now passed, passed over and placed on him. And finally, to end, we're talking about both hope and justice. Hope and justice for, for, for Dina, and we've seen as well hope and justice for the worst of sinners out there, the scum of the earth. Jesus himself, he was seized. Look at, look at this language, Genesis 34 language, describing what, what Jesus went through. Jesus was seized, he was abused, he was humiliated, he was defiled, and he was abandoned, all for our sake. He chose to go through what Dinah did because he loves us. And he even forgave those who are doing it. So as we leave here today, two things I want us to remember, two ways we should and can respond out of this. First is, thank God that he is both just and merciful. We need both. We're screwed either way if, if God is only just or if God is only merciful. So thank God that he's both, that he will punish sin, that even if in this world it doesn't look like the bad ever get punished, they always get away. They will receive punishment in the end. And to know that our sin is forgiven because the punishment was taken by Jesus. So believe this good news, whether you're a victim or whether you're an abuser, or whether you're both. Thank God that he is just and that he is merciful. So we've seen today, we've seen rape. Rape is not only sinful and evil and horrible because it dehumanizes someone, makes them an object instead of an image bearer, but it also says the opposite of the gospel. Right? Listen, listen. this is what rape is telling people. It's, it's the antithesis of the gospel, the opposite. It says that I can use and abuse someone at their expense without their consent and that I can see them as less than human because I am better, more important, or more powerful than my victim. Lies. Opposite of the gospel. Whereas the gospel says Jesus chose to empty himself, to give himself up, to, to release his power and his importance, and to choose to be used and abused in our place and to take the punishment that was due to the scum of the earth, the rapists, the murderers, the cowardly fathers, all in order to give us life and full humanity. And then finally, number two, live out of what has just happened to you. Don't, don't be a person that, li that does good deeds in order to earn their salvation, but rather because you've been redeemed, like we just talked about, because you've... Uh, What's the verb of expiation? Because you've received expiation, because you've been cleansed, because you have been given justification, you've been declared innocent, live out of that, okay? And this, it could look a million different ways, but some things, just in relation to our passage here, live out of your redemption, your expiation, your justification, and fight against horrible injustices in this world. As we see evil, fight against it, but do so as a Christian, remembering that there's a just judge out there. That even if evil gets away with it for a while, it won't in the end. So Christians fight against evil in this world differently than people who don't believe that there is a just judge on the throne. Also, teach your kids, if you're a parent, if you teach a class here at, at Hiawatha, to see the image of God in others, especially people that are different than them. Someone of a different gender, a different ethnicity, a different background, a different age. Help our kids to see that everyone is created in the image of God. And, and our diversity in humanity actually reflects that diversity in, in the Trinity, which is a beautiful thing. Help our kids to see that so we don't grow up and, and have a bunch of these entitled uh, kids that, that think that they can just treat people as less than human. Third, if you have a victim in your life, and, and many of you know someone, like this was their story, talk to them. Don't say anything. I mean, if they want to share, talk to them. Be good listeners. Let them know that you love them. Truly listen. See how, 
how it's affected them and try to empathize rather than to just speak into it and tell them how they shouldn't feel. Do not do that. Stand against, also stand up against our culture of violence and especially against women. Practically, this looks like saying things when you hear horrible jokes that people are laughing at. Or stop watching movies, rated R movies that just talk about this kind of stuff or stand-up comedians that, that make this, this, uh, this horrible violence against women, sexual uh, violence, rape, all this kind of stuff just be kind of like a joke or just, you know, we've seen it so much, choose to stand up against that kind of stuff. And finally, share the good news with others who are hurting as well as those who have hurt others. There, there's, we definitely want people to get professional counseling and to feel and, and, and to receive healing and, and all this kind of stuff as well. But Christians cannot forget that we have better news than just, than just only a fix here on this, word, on, on, this earth, on this earth. So share the good news that we've just been talking about, the, the good news, the gospel, that's both for the abusers as well as the abused. And then just finally, practically, as we leave, just know that there's people here on staff at Hiawatha that are here for you. And so if you don't have a person that you can talk to, that you can process your history with or your past or, or an event or something, just know that there's people here on staff that love you and that are, that are available to you if you need something like that, um, Emily Kleiber, who's on staff, she'll be around in her office, which is a couple doors down in, in the fireside room. I'll be here afterwards. Or here's all of our emails. Feel free to email us anytime, and we'll love to talk with you. Or we could even refer you to, to, to someone else if you'd rather have it be even more anonymous. So just know that Hiawatha is a place where we pray that you can receive great healing and restoration and, and uh, redemption, especially through the gospel and also through, you know, biblical counseling and Christian community as well. So let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a God that loves the hurting and the people that inflict hurt, God, because we know, we look deep enough into our hearts, we know that we have done both. And God, we pray for, for the victims uh, here in this room. God, we know that um, you're a God that, that uh, has been a victim himself, that, that uh, empathizes and feels what they've gone through, that chose to go through it uh, on their behalf. And so we pray that they'd find healing in the gospel, long-term healing and, and restoration, and that they'd see uh, their great worth and how much you love them. We pray also for uh, the horrible people in this room, of, of whom we all are, God, that abuse and use people, whether it's in our minds and hearts or whether it's in actions as well. God, your gospel is scandalous. It really is. But we thank you for it because we know we, we want a God that's uh, just, but we also need a God that's merciful. And we thank you that you are both. Pray this in your powerful, saving, healing, and redeeming name. Amen. Amen. Let's